You know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stork Show. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Andy Stork Show. My name is Andy Storch, and this is a show where we can come together to starve our fears, follow our dreams, and fulfill our true potential. And speaking of starving our fears, one of the most important things we can do in life is have difficult conversations, and that often means getting uncomfortable, doing things that are uncomfortable, reaching out to people when it may feel uncomfortable. And recently, we've seen a lot of things in the news about the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, the marches and peaceful protests and sometimes violent protests that have been happening uh, in cities all across the U.S. and the world. And uh, this has been eye-opening for me and for everybody and for many companies. And I've been having tons of conversations, but I haven't really said anything about it on my podcast yet. And I want to let you know, first and foremost, that I absolutely stand with the black community against racism for equality, for inclusion. I've been having conversations for months uh, with uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, professionals in different organizations uh, because of my main business and really getting very into this world and idea of inclusiveness and equality. And I've always, uh, you know, believed strongly in, um, you know, showing love and appreciation and respect to everybody, regardless of where they come from. But the fact of the matter is that I have lived a very privileged life as a white man growing up in America, uh, white privilege as they call it. And uh, I have um, had a lot of great benefits because of that. And I am not, you know, necessarily racist or causing problems, but still part of the problem because I haven't done my part to try to end racism. I've educated myself over the years, but I haven't really done anything to help uh, further the movement. And, and furthermore, when I look at my network, when I look at who I've had on my podcast, both of my podcasts over the years, um, they've been predominantly white. I have not been doing anything to prop up people in the black community. And um, so this was a wake-up call for me, as it has been for a lot of people. And maybe you have been really thinking about that as well, or maybe you're like, yeah, you know, business as usual doesn't affect me. Um, that's up to you. Uh, but I personally want to live in a world, uh, it sounds a little idyllic, but a world where everybody is treated fairly and that race, uh, sexual orientation, gender, any of that stuff has nothing to do with people's success. Uh, it's more to do with you know, who they are, how they show up in the world, um, the friends they have, that sort of thing. And so I want to do my part to, to help change that. And that's why I'm doing this episode today to raise that awareness. Um, but I'm not doing it on my own because I am, I'm learning these things along with you. I'm learning these things as, as I go and trying to figure it out. And I want to learn as much as I can and be able to spread the message and share with others. And so when the Black Lives Movement uh, matters movement started. I always do that. Black Lives Matter movement started a few weeks ago. Uh, I was frozen for about a week. I wasn't sure what to do, what to say. Do I need to say anything? Is it appropriate to post on social media or do podcast episodes on anything else besides this? And so I did a couple posts on social about how I stand with the black community and will do what I can. And I want to, um, you know, wake up or um, keep spreading the message, especially to my predominantly white network. And um, I, I was trying to figure out what else I could do. And I, I read some things. I read some advice about how you should reach out to your black network, your black friends, and find out 
uh, how they're feeling, what they're thinking about this. So I did that. And I have to tell you, it was awkward at first to basically reach out to black friends, some that I hadn't talked to in 10 years and say, hey, I want to catch up. And knowing that the reason is because of this Black Lives Matter movement, which just seemed awkward to me, you know, like that shouldn't be the reason that we talk or catch up, but it is the reason. And what I realized through this, and I did reach out to those people and had several phone calls with black friends in my network from different places, um, you know, that I met through LinkedIn, that I met through business school, that I met through other places. And um, what I found through having those conversations is number one, it's always hard to do that initial reach out. But once you get on and have the conversation and people know that you're reaching out with great intentions and to be a friend and ally, uh, it leads to a great conversation. I had some really great conversations, catching up with people professionally, personally, hearing different perspectives. So the first thing is it's hard at first, but it, it's always great in the end because you're having more conversations, which is a good thing. Uh, number two is that everybody has had different experiences and therefore has different opinions on what's going on in the world. So just because someone is black or just because someone is white doesn't mean that all of their feelings or opinions are the same. In fact, uh, obviously we are all individuals no matter our, what our race, religion, country, you know, origin is. We're all individuals with different backgrounds, different upbringing. And you know, I spoke with black friends who have been dealing with challenges because of their race for a lot of their lives, despite being in the corporate world and doing well professionally. I've spoke with black friends who have hard, hardly any challenges and, and almost don't see what all the fuss is about. And I spoke with black friends who think that all of this movement is um, addressing the wrong things and that there are underlying issues that we're still not even getting to. And so there's a lot of different factors in this. I think the most important thing in telling you this story that I want to encourage you to do is just have more of those conversations. Just be willing to reach out if you are white uh, and you haven't, you have some black friends or people in your black network you haven't talked to. I'm not saying, I know some black friends I've talked to, you know, and I'll get to this interview, you'll hear about it. Um, people can feel inundated with all the white friends reaching out to them. So if you're going to do it, it's gotta be done um, with the right approach of, hey, I've already educated myself. I just wanna hear about your personal experience and see how I can support you. Um, you know, do it with, within, within reason, um, but get over that, that awkwardness, that hard part, and just state the obvious, what's going on. Hey, I'm white, you're black. Um, I'd love to just talk to you about that. And what I realized through all of this, and, and you'll hear that in this interview that I'm about to share, is that in the old days, I, I think we kind of genuine, generally agreed that the solution to getting past this race inequality was just to pretend it didn't exist, to try to strive for this idyllic world where we don't see color, right? We're just all friends. And what I think I've realized that we've realized as a society is that didn't, that just didn't work. It doesn't work because it, it never comes true. Instead, we have to call it out and have that conversation. Like I said, hey, you're black, I'm white. Let's talk about that. How do you feel? Um, what's going on in your world? And then I found, found by having those conversations that it brings people closer together. Okay, so that is my opinion, my take on what's going on. I want to share a different, well, not necessarily a different perspective, but a black perspective with you, um, especially if you are uh, white or any race, it doesn't even matter, but especially if you're white or you're not black and you're saying over the last couple weeks, how do I become more of an ally to the black network? What do I do? I've been seeing all these posts. Um, I wanted to do an interview to 
answer that question and provide more information. So I was looking for someone that I could talk to about this, and I happened across this article on LinkedIn by this guy named Thomas Igeme, and we weren't even connected. I don't know how it showed up in my feed. I think it was featured by LinkedIn, and um, the article was called basically How to Be a Black Ally, and uh, it was really well written and laid out, and I loved it, and I commented on it, and I connected with Thomas, and I, and I just asked him, hey, can I interview you about this article? and share your thoughts with my network. And uh, you know, sometimes people are a great writer, but maybe they're not as great in an interview. Um, and this has nothing to do with race or anything else, right? Just, I've, I've interviewed over 300 people over the years and some people are great and some people are not so great. Um, and Thomas came and he just brought the fire. So uh, we did an interview live on LinkedIn uh, the other day and uh, we got all the questions answered, including some questions that came in from people who joined. And I wanna share that with you now. I know I'm, I'm already a few minutes into this, uh, so I hope you'll hang in there or pause this and save it and listen to it when you get a chance to really focus in because Thomas has some great advice here on how to be a black ally. We also talk about some of the other groups out there that are dealing with some of these issues and um, how do we get past some of the stumbling blocks? How do we have these conversations at work and with our friends? And so I think this is gonna be really great. Thomas Akime is, uh, a corporate professional. He's in manager development for a tech company called ServiceNow. He has also been a professor at Stanford University for many years. Um, he has been fighting this fight for many years for black equality. He's also gay and involved in the pride, gay pride movement as well. Um, so many different perspectives and so much great information that come in this. So without further ado, uh, here is my interview with uh, Thomas Igeme. All right. I am live with Thomas Igeme, who is head of people manager development at ServiceNow and instructor at Stanford, connected with the business school there, uh, and uh, someone that I connected with recently on LinkedIn uh, as this Black Lives Matter movement was really getting underway. And Thomas, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. Yeah, thank you for, for coming. We were just getting to know each other a little bit. It, I already know you have an interesting background uh, with an eclectic mix of experience. Um, maybe we can just start there. Um, you know, where are you from and, and, and what do you do now? Uh, yeah, so um, I where am I from is a very interesting question, um, but I actually was not born in, uh, born in the United States. Um, I was born in Kenya. Um, and um, this will come up a little bit more important in my story, but, but helpful to know. I was born, um, I grew up quite poor um, and when I was in Kenya, um, and I'm also gay, um, and both of those are, are going to be really important. Um, and so just in growing up, for me, there were not too many opportunities, um, and very much coming to the United States and seeking a better life was as much about survival for me and my family um, as it was about self-actualization. Um, and so at 18, um, I came to this country with um, exactly $273 to my name. Mm. Um, I remember it like it is today. Um, I was able to teach myself to take the SATs, ended up uh, being able to earn a diversity scholarship um, to um, Stanford. Um, one of the things that had come out of the civil rights movement in the 70s, and that opportunity um, changed my life forever. And so my relationship to America and to race in America then tends to kind of have these dual pieces. Mm -hmm. um, I very much um, live as a Black person in this country with some of the challenges, the day-to-day -day challenges that I think have come to light um, with all of that. But I'm also a recipient of the civil rights movement and a beneficiary mm. 
if it was not for those who've gone before and for, fought for equal access and racial yeah. justice, yeah. I would not have access to what I have today. And so my energy and passion to support the black community, to support America and the American dream, yeah. I also feel very much um, is born out of what it has given me um, and my desire for it to give that to all um, Americans. Right. It, it sounds like a, a very healthy mix of gratitude for what's already been accomplished and the opportunities that have been presented to you with also the desire to make things better, know with the knowledge that we can do better, right, in this yeah. country. Yeah, we can do a lot better. Awesome. And um, now you work as a people development manager at ServiceNow, as well as uh, teaching at Stanford. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do there professionally? Yeah, um, so I head up people manager development um, at ServiceNow. So I'm just responsible for how we build great people managers. There's been a recognition across the talent development industry and ServiceNow is no different, that the role of the people manager is critically important. It's probably the most important role for organizational success. Um, and this is true all the way from your frontline manager um, right up to, um, um, right up to your CEO. Um, yeah. And yet very often we've, the role of a people manager, quite frankly, is an afterthought. We promote people into the role because they were really great at being individual. Yes. Yeah. Um, we don't really pay much attention to them until we're thinking of them as executives and yeah. leadership. And so often just the role of what it takes to pull together a team, to invest in them, to make sure they feel cared for, to make sure that they're working optimally is underinvested in. Um, and ServiceNow does not want to underinvest there. And so my job is to pull together a strategy and help execute with an incredible team on how we really define what grade is um, and drive that all the way through. I love that. And it's so interesting that what you talked about is what I talk about a lot as the biggest challenge in talent development, which is managers, people being being promoted because they're good at their job without any sort of training on how to become a manager. But we are not talking about that today. I've had that topic covered many times on my podcast. We're going to talk about something that is much more uh, relevant to the times and quite frankly, an awkward topic for a lot of people. And this all started because I saw an article that you posted on LinkedIn uh, back on June 4th titled Dear Newly Activated Black Ally. And um, I read this article and I felt like you were talking to me because yeah. I am someone who is, uh, I like to think, you know, raised with the idea that everybody is equal and we give love and generosity to everybody. I was very lucky to have great parents who were open-minded like that. And yet I'm still someone who lives a very privileged life and has not really spent too much time thinking about, well, how can I help the um, underprivileged or um, you know, the, the minority groups in this country or my black friends who may not have the same opportunities that I do. So can you tell me about why did you decide to write that article? Um, yeah, well, well, honestly, it was, it was a labor of love. I literally did have a number of people reach out to me and ask, Hey, I, I exactly what you articulated, Andy. Like I, I've, I've never thought of myself as racist. I desire to live in a fair world, but I recognize that I could be doing more and I want to do more. What should I do? Um, and recognizing the difficulty of that conversation. So just kind of naming a couple of things that, that made that conversation hard on either end. I think for a lot of people, there was a, a sense of guilt as they felt that, well, you know, I, I feel bad for the fact that I've not been as engaged as I right. would have before. I, I didn't really understand it. I think, um, I'll, I'll be honest, on my end, there was a sense of fatigue 
um, with how many times am I gonna be able to answer this question? Um, there's also some of the pain because there are a lot of people, um, I'm just one of them, but um, activists who've been crying about this for years. Um, yeah. This is not a new movement. Um, and so there's a bit of a sense of, oh man, um, why, why did it take so long? And yet I think in these moments, right, we always have an opportunity. Um, and what I wanted to do was, was clearly articulate first for myself and then for anybody else who might be helped out by the emotional labor of articulating out there, what I felt the clear opportunity for us was. Um, and there are many things I talk about in the article, but I think the biggest one is this is an opportunity to commit in a new way and stick around for the long haul for the work of anti-racism. Um, you called out something, Andy, that I think is really important um, in this work if we truly are going to make a difference. Um, we tend to be a very individualistic um, society here in America. And so when we think about racism, the first thought that comes to mind is my own thoughts and beliefs. Right. Do I like people who are different from me? Do I believe in a fair yeah. world? Yeah. Um, and those are really important, right? Like, like recognizing our biases and, and pulling through um, and doing that work is important. But that really is not the fight that we're up against. Hmm. When we think about the killing um, of Black people um, en masse um, by the police, when we think about mass incarceration, when we think about systemic underinvestment under in education, those things are much bigger than any one individual um, and actually aren't all that affected by how you feel um, about the person who's next to you. Those are systemic changes that are gonna require all of us to get activated to push around. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, and it's counterintuitive, the question of am I a racist as a binary yes or no, isn't, isn't the true important question. The question is what am I doing with the resources that I have to fight against the racism mm -hmm. that are present in my world? And that's what it means to be anti-racist versus mm -hmm. non-racist. It's taking a step up and saying, I'm going to do my part to fight the fight. And what I love about that framework is it doesn't matter where you are on the journey, you have a role to play. Yeah. Um, for some people, it is just about beginning to get engaged, but like there's always more that we can do, right? When I take a look at my own life, Andy, and I think through, well, what more could I do leveraging my position, my power, my access to help create a more just and less racist world? There's, yeah. there's always more, a step more for each of us. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because uh, there's a tendency for many of us, and I'll just speak for uh, my peers in the white community to say, you know, I'm pretty open-minded. I never, I don't think I'm racist, right? So I'm not part of the problem. And we can talk about whether that's, you know, being silent and going on your way is still part of the problem or not. But what you're talking about, the difference between not being a racist and being anti-racist. And um, I don't know why I thought of this analogy. You can tell me if this is terrible or this is relevant. But I was just thinking like, sometimes if I have a couple of drinks or two, I, I self-reflect and think like, am I alcoholic or am I just you know, having time and I can, I can stop this, but whether I'm drinking too much or not is very different from whether I'm actively helping my friends live a better life or helping other people get over those problems because there are many alcoholics out there who are yeah. dealing with a lot of struggles. Um, and I know that's very different from racism and, you know, systemic racism and things like that, but I'm just trying to sometimes put things in perspective for people to think about, well, how should I be thinking about this sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. 
I completely, um, I, I love that analogy <laughs> in terms of the, what, what it calls out in terms of this idea of kind of this spectrum and, and how by sometimes centering ourselves, we can lose sight of, of what the problem is. I think like similarly, and, and you just called out um, something else that I think is very helpful here that I'm seeing more and more in our conversation around racism that is absolutely important as we think about what it means to be a great ally. Yeah. So much of it, once again, this is really hard for all of us, but being a great ally is about centering the experience of somebody else, of mm. the marginalized person. So the real core question, and I'm kind of repeating it than what I said, but in a different way, isn't yeah. am I racist or not, but rather is the marginalized person experiencing racism or not? Mm. And being in the fight, not until I feel like I've exercised my own demons, yeah. but until they're getting a fair shot. Right. And the truth is that's a longer fight. That That is a lifelong um, fight in many, many ways. That is going to involve and call on us and make to make us uncomfortable in ways that we may not think. Um, There's so many ways that we will, if we truly embrace into this, end up taking risks, like having conversations or trying things. And, and I call this out in my article, many times with the best of intentions actually offending. Um, the people who are trying to help, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, I loved your analogy, but but Andy, you could have come up with an analogy that I thought was absolutely awful. Right. I'm still grateful that you try it because if you're not able to try, we're not able to grow. And mm -hmm. I think the only way you have the energy to do that is by choosing not to center yourself, but rather the problem that we are all united um, in addressing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and we do have a few people joining us live on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you are and you have a question, go ahead and drop that in the chat. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I still have plenty of questions. Um, one, I'm always interested in the, as a content creator myself, the personal side of this, and we'll get back into the anti-racism stuff. When you post that article, were you nervous about that? And like, what uh, might happen? I, I was. Um, and in fact, um, so so I was. Um, I I shared it with one or two people um, and actually got like a bunch of feedback. And as you sure you should say this? And um, was I going to make people uncomfortable? Um, and would I, and I think this is a fear for a lot of people in this work, would I, did I run the risk of turning off people who are just trying to get engaged, yeah. but like might leave feeling too uncomfortable um, to push forward? Um, that being said, ultimately for me, um, what I realized we all need to do in this work is get over our prioritizing of comfort over justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All are going to be uncomfortable on this journey. Some of us for what we share, some of us for the mistakes that we're going to make. And a big part of me is like, you know, I'm not going to get this perfectly right. No. At some point, it needs to be more important to me to speak the truth than it is for me to make other people comfortable, make myself comfortable. Um, and I was, I was floored. I did not expect um, to get the response that I did. I was, I was probably hoping to speak to my immediate network. I've been so... Um, encouraged, not just by the reshares and the views, but by the personal notes that I've received from people. Yeah. One of my core asks when I wrote it was just the recognition from those of us, I'll give you kind of a spoiler alert for those of us who've been in the fight for a longer time. This will tire you out. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of energy and a lot of excitement now, but man, we are trying to unwind a 400 year old problem. 
Mm. And when you think about like what that takes, there's going to be many, many days where you're where you're not sure um, that you still have what it takes to go forward or where the distractions of life come in your way. And what I ask people to do is whatever you can do to bottle up and somehow note the energy that you're feeling in this moment. And my clear ask was write a letter to mm. yourself for those moments. Um, call out and articulate why this is so important to you now, why you feel this is urgent, so that you can keep coming back to it when you inevitably feel low on energy resources. Um, and I was so heartened, not by just the people who read it, but the people who actually did that um, and shared some of their messages with me. Um, and it ended up being what I was not at all writing this for, incredibly healing. Um, to hear people acknowledge um, their previous racism and that they wanted to do better, to hear people make commitments um, to what they were going to do, not just for themselves, but for the kind of families they were committed to raising. Um, and I will just say that, that you're finding me today, Andy, tired, in many ways deeply exhausted um, on this, but probably more hopeful yeah. for lasting change on this than I ever have been. Um, yeah. I love that. And um, I think when you put stuff out there that is potentially a little controversial, it's always going to make you a little nervous, but that's also how we make change. That's also how we influence people. That's how we get conversations started. If you hadn't done that, you and I wouldn't know each other. We wouldn't be talking now, yeah. right? And sharing this conversation. And I'm sure you've had many others. And I've dealt with that too, because when all of this started, you know, after the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement started, and I started reading, okay, what can I do? How to become a better black ally? And one of the pieces of advice was reach out to your black friends and people in the black network and, and ask them how you can support them. At the same time, every time I go to craft that message to ask somebody for a phone call or an interview like this, I feel like, oh, but it's just because they're black. That's not, you know, that's not, somebody could be offended by this. But at the same time, if I don't do it, then no conversations happen. So I finally decided, you know, we just need to have these conversations and mm. started sending invites out. And I've had a lot of great conversations as a result. Um, so my point in that and, and to encourage other people is there's always going to be a risk. Mm. This is new territory. You're probably going to screw it up no matter what side you're on, right? Um, but if you don't take a chance and don't start that conversation, don't talk to people, don't have it, don't try to do something, then nothing changes, right? Nothing mm -hmm. happens. So we do have to take action, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So um, you've already given some great tips on how to be a great black ally uh, and the fact that this is this is a movement, not a moment. So it's going to take a while. Um, what other tips or advice would you give, particularly to those of us, you know, the people in my network who are mostly white and privileged? And, you know, let's say a lot of them are like me who you know, want deeply to be an ally, but just never really thought about it before now. And um, you know, don't want to sit around feeling guilty. would rather take action yeah. and do something to help. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to think of, of the actions that you can take. I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering management consultant. So mm. I take in lists. Um, and so I'll, I'll use my simple list. There are lots of amazing ones out there. And it's listen, learn, act, and reflect. Um, and so the, the first piece kind of starts with exactly what you called out, um, which is how go, taking a moment to go out and listen. Listen to the stories of people different from you, prioritizing marginalized voices. Um, some of this is reaching out to the people in your network. Um, but I will say, and, and you called this out, many of them may be tired and exhausted from having those conversations. There are lots of amazing resources out there with personal stories. And the reason I encourage people to start with personal stories is it's very, well, you know, I started by talking about how this is systemic. 
And the power of recognizing this is systemic is it helps us understand that everybody needs to get engaged. Yep. The danger with talking about it being systemic is it's for, it's easy for us to forget that these are real people's lives yeah. that we are talking about. And the more that we are connected to real people and understand these as real experiences, the better we are. And so I always encourage you to start off with listening. There are a number of wonderful podcasts out there. Mm -hmm. And to just ask yourself on a weekly basis, when am I hearing the stories of people who are different from me? And figure out ways to build that into your system. The second piece is to learn. Um, there's a long and unfortunately painful history yeah. of um, racism in general and anti-Black racism in particular in America. And um, I think it behooves anyone who's going on this allyship journey to learn. Um, learn about it, learn about the context, and learn what people have been trying and what works and what doesn't. Um, the good news is, is that while we are waking up to this in a new way as a nation, there are activists and people who have been crying this song for generations. Mm. They have tried and proven ways of doing this. We don't need to start from scratch. And so leverage that, go out. A lot of people find the book White Fragility a great place to start as they're mm. kind of coming into their journey. I recommend, um, for those of you who have Netflix, um, the documentary 13th by Ava DuVernay, um, but literally a simple um, Google search. Um, the Smithsonian has a great how to talk about race, mm -hmm. um, um, kind of online resource that will walk you through. But take a moment to educate yourself. Yeah. Part of that is just about doing the work. This, the, the second part of that is it's actually a huge amount of care. When you reach out to the people, um, to the black, to the indigenous, to the people of color in your network, um, knowing that you have done some research on your own is a huge way to make the commitment that you're not just asking them to do the work for you. Right. You're taking the time to do it. Yeah. And um, I, and I was having yeah. this conversation with my wife last night. Sorry to interrupt you. No, please, please. And one of the things we were debating was like, well, this whole idea of reaching out to black people on our network. And she had been listening to these podcasts and stories about all of these black people who were frankly annoyed with all the white people that were reaching out to them. But when we talked about it, it sounded like the difference was, and it's all in the approach of people reaching out and just saying, hey, educate me on you know, this movement, right? When you're asking, you're now putting the onus on them, asking them to do all the work yeah. versus coming, what you're saying is coming and educate. I've been educating myself. Yeah. I want to hear your personal story and how I can support you. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you, um, that that also brings up, and that is kind of just worth repeating at this moment, is that um, there, everyone's story is going to be different. I think that's the value of listening, right? Um, and everyone's going to be in a different place. You know, I like to say that there are moments where I, I'm aware and saddened by the people who haven't reached out to me. Um, there are also moments where I feel exhausted by the people who have, and I'm the same right. Right. Yeah. Like, how do you figure that out? You've got to go out there and ask. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so making that time and, and just recognize that the answer is going to be different, that like, you know, black people like any any group are not a monolith. Um, mm -hmm. There are many experiences as there are people. Um, so anyway, I, I love that. Thank you for calling that out. My last two things were act and reflect. Mm. I think it is so, so important to take an act, no matter how small, on the path to anti-racism. Maybe for you, it is just a post um, on social media. Um, maybe it is a conversation in your home. 
Maybe it is a conversation with your team at work. Maybe it is making a donation to an organization um, like the NAACP or the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that has been in this work. You'll figure out what's right for you. One of the things that we like to say is there are lots of tracks to take on this journey. There is no right way to act. When something is systemic, the good news is we actually need to hit it from every single angle. And so that is okay. Um, if you feel like your role is going out and peacefully protesting, we love and welcome you. But if you feel like your role is going out and having deep, intimate conversations with your family, please do that too. Try and avoid the paralysis of guilt that comes from trying to, that is so focused on trying to figure out the right thing to do that yeah. you don't do anything at all. But then that goes to my last piece, and I'll go in there, which is just to reflect. Um, you've said it, I've said it. None of us are perfectly anti-racist. We right. are all on this journey. And so what does that mean? It means that anytime we try and act, we're going to do some things right and we're going to do some things wrong. And the best way to address that is merely to actually build that into our ecosystem. So rather than asking, did I, did I do that right? Did I do that wrong? Was that good? Was that bad? What did I learn from what I acted on? What do I wish, what could I do better um, mm -hmm. next time? That lens kind of allows us to all take on the growth mindset that we need to go on this journey, this marathon um, together. Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned um, companies, uh, actions within companies as well. And uh, you have a unique perspective on this being that uh, you are in the corporate world. You're also in academia. Uh, you see all sides of this. And uh, many of my listeners are in the corporate world. And we see companies taking action like never before, right? I mean, a lot of companies have paid lip service to this or have DEI departments who, you know, maybe there's one or two people who say, hey, we need to have more inclusion here. Um, but things are definitely changing fast. You and I are recording this on Friday, June 19th, which is also known as Juneteenth, which is a holiday that has been around for 150 years since 1865. Uh, and yet most people had not heard of it before this week and it's not really been celebrated. And now uh, so many companies uh, have the day off today or giving people off the day, uh, the day off today. Uh, so things are definitely changing. And you told me where you work service now, people have the day off to learn and reflect, which I love. I think it's fab fantastic. So things are changing. And my question is, especially for those in talent development, leadership positions, influential positions, what can we do be doing within our companies mm. to further this movement, to be an ally, um, to create more, not only um, diversity, but really inclusion and equity or equality? Yeah, awesome. Um, well, I think the, um, thank you so much for that question um, because I've been actively thinking through it as someone who wears that hat as well. Yeah. Um, one of the first things that I think is important as we remember this work is that at its core, the work of anti-Black racism, the work of diversity, of inclusion, of equity, and the work of talent development go hand in hand. Yes. Being a great leader in a diverse world is being an inclusive leader. And ultimately, while this moment kind of is going to cause us to kind of use our skills in some really intense, um, sometimes uncomfortable ways, what I liken it to do is all you're doing is you're taking kind of your leadership development course at PhD level rather than at like undergrad level. But the core skills that this is pulling up on us, skills of leading with empathy, 
um, skills of really learning how to listen, um, skills of learning how to lead and build consensus, um, skills of learning how to lead when there isn't consensus and you still need to set a vision and go forward. Those are the core of what we as talent development um, folks are trying to instill in our organizations all the time. And I think the more we and our organizations can understand this as a core part of the job rather than an additional addendum to the job, the more successful that we're going to be. Um, I think though that there is a, um, when I think through what the right strategy at this moment in time is, and I, my advice to talent development officials is, I'd think through your org and your strategy in terms of how are you going to support at this moment in time, your black employees specifically, and then how are you going to support the rest of your organizations as allies and advocates? And those are very different um, journeys. So, um, and by the way, this structure works for any marginalized group. So. I, I want to acknowledge that we, you know, this is the month of pride. The same thing would be true if you were thinking about supporting your LGBTQ plus individuals versus the rest of your org as allies. How do you think about what the unique needs are of that group in time? How do you communicate to the marginalized group, one, that you care? Um, two, how do you take time to listen to what their experiences are in your organization? Um, and then how do you build up talent development strategies that really come and pinpoint the address, the things that feel most important. And then as you think about um, taking through your allies and advocates versus the org on the journey, it's much the same structure. It'll just lead to slightly different things. First, how do you take a moment to set a clear standard on where you as an organization stand? Um, I think that is absolutely critical. While everyone is on a journey, what your people need from you is to know where you would have them be. What is absolutely our true north? And then the next stage is listen to them. Where are we at on that journey? What are we doing well? Um, what are we not? What help do they need? Um, and then the third part is just really being there to encourage these conversations at a manager and team level. Um, part of this work, because it is so long, um, it requires deep trust. And one of the mistakes that I've seen many, um, many talent development organizations make is by pulling up and making this an enterprise conversation, we never get to the level of kind of trust and safety that's required mm. for people to really ask the hard questions. And it's one of the reasons why your people managers and supporting them at this moment is so critical yeah. because they have the oh so important and oh so tough job of having this conversation at the locus where it matters. Because ultimately how people feel on the job is much more influenced by what is going to happen on that team yeah. than what your corporate statement says right. about right. diversity and inclusion. And so if you can't figure out a way to help that unit have the right conversation, figure out where they're going and what works for them, all of the stuff you do at the top is going to be for naught. I love that. And it's so important to remember that these things happen on the micro level. Right. They're happening on the team level, whether we're talking about racism or any type of cultural issues. You know, I run leadership development programs for a living, and I've had a conversation in companies where they say, how do I be a great leader and support my people in a toxic culture? And my answer is always the same. It starts with you and your team. You're not going to change the entire organization. Start where you can with what you can control, and then you can start to influence out from there. So don't rely just on an organization. How can you start to take action, do these things? for your team, the people around you, expand that. Uh, and I'm hearing about more organizations having these uh, listening sessions. Um, I mentioned to you right before we started recording, I hosted a community call right before this for talent development leaders. And my friend, uh, Larry McAllister from NetApp was telling me about the listening sessions they've been doing there with small groups, making sure that everybody gets a chance to speak up. Um, related to that, we got a question 
from um, Sinead O.A. Condon, who is watching, who said, how do we help inform employees on language? What is triggering language? A lot of folks struggling with what and what not to say, which is why I think some folks are afraid to have the conversation or say anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, Sinead. I love, love that. Um, love, love that question. Cause I think it is so true for so many of us. Um, I would say your, the two pieces of advice I would give is the first is Google is your best friend. <laughs> and then let's set up rules of engagement around the conversation. So the first with Google is your best friend is there's actually a lot of great articles around there about key phrases or language that can be triggering. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the importance of taking personal in um, total responsibility for going out and doing some of your own learning. I would encourage everyone to just do a quick Google search on how to have an effective conversation about race before mm. you dive in there. Um, that will that will deeply help. Um, I think as you come in. That being said, nothing is going to be one size fits all. And let be real. So the, the something that I might deeply appreciate, you're gonna run right down the street and Thomas told you it was perfect. You'll try it um, with the next person you see who is black and they're gonna be deeply offended. And you're gonna be like, what the hell, Thomas? Right. I thought right. you said that that was okay. Yeah. Um, and that's real because not everyone is the same in much the same way I'm sure there are things that you find deeply uncomfortable or offensive that other people may not. And so I like to talk about rules of engagement uh, whenever we open conversations about race. I think naming the fact that it is uncomfortable for all of us, mm. but that we are together choosing to prioritize justice and progress over discomfort is something that we can all come together on. Because trust me, folks who are struggling, just like folks are struggling with whether to say the right thing, folks yep. are struggling to just even be in the conversation if they're in the yeah. marketing group. Yeah. And the three kind of rules of engagement that I really encourage are, the first is care and respect. Just with everything you're saying, kind of asking yourself, right? How can I show that I care about the person I'm chatting with and that I respect them? And sometimes you'll just say it, look, I care for you, I respect you. And so I'm a little afraid about asking this or phrasing it this way, but blah, or here's my statement. The next part is honesty and safety. Um, I think on both sides. So there is, it is important to be honest about where you're at. There is no need to pretend to understand things that you don't understand. There is no need um, to feel a need to pretend to be at some point in the journey that you are not. I actually think it's why I think the concept of a journey is so important. Mm. When we think of this as binary, racist or not racist, that all of a sudden gets really hairy. When we think of us as all learning how to be more anti-racist with our lives, well, there are things we all get and the things we all don't understand and we're going on there. But the last part is a, just a commitment to being open and curious. So when you do notice that you offended someone, your amygdala is going to go off. That is a very human response. Yep. Your fight or flight is going to go in. You might feel yourself getting hot. You might feel yourself getting tense. And everything in you is going to want to be either defensive about what your intent was because you didn't want to do it or to run away from the mm -hmm. conversation, right? Yep. Fight or flight. Yep. I want to instead encourage you to choose curiosity. I'm sorry, that was not my intent. Could you let me know a little bit more about why you found that offensive? Yeah. I actually promise you that so few people get asked that question that that conversation is generally a more healing one yeah. than, than not having a conversation at all. Right. Um, I, I can say that certainly for myself. Um, I am more than open to having conversations that offend me if people are willing to be curious about why I was offended and show that they care. Because, yeah. goodness, I need the same grace as well. 
Yeah. And you're, you go through life, you have a lot of conversations, you're going to offend people. How or why are people offended? It's because something doesn't align with their personal values, whatever they may be, right? It may not have nothing to do with race. It could be something else. Hey, we don't talk about this. I can't believe you're bringing this up. It could be sex, could be anything else, right? Things that you might talk about. Um, the other thing you mentioned there that I think is interesting, it, it kind of came together in my mind, is that I think this whole thing has caused a shift in how the, we these, have these conversations because... From my understanding, just looking at it, my own personal experience and reading about it, for a long time, the, quote, answer to anti-racism was to pretend that race didn't exist. Mm. You and I can be friends. We never bring this up. And if we pretend there's not racial differences, then it doesn't exist, right? And we pretend that we live in this idyllic world where everything is fine. And so, therefore, those conversations didn't happen. And I never, you know, I have had black friends, but we never specifically talked about the fact that we're different races. And I think now what this is stimulating is that we do have those conversations. It's okay yeah. to say, hey, Thomas, you are black and I am white. We can be friends. We have different backgrounds. Let's talk about our personal experiences and what you're feeling about all this and what I'm feeling about this and how can we support each other. And it just it it's awkward at first, but it feels like a breath of fresh air in the long term that we can just be open and talk, you know, much like with you know sexuality and everything else instead of sweeping things under the rug, just have a conversation about it. I could not agree more. Um, and you called out, I think, what the promise or value is for all of us. Mm. Because if we can have a conversation of, and be real about something as kind of challenging as race, yeah. my gosh, then how much easier does conversation about different learning styles, introversion versus extroversion, and meetings, for example, that are feeling really difficult for some people. How much yeah. easier does that sound? Right. How much easier does it sound to have conversations about managing kids at home? Um, I saw someone make a comment about it, and it was yeah. wonderful, Andy, to see your kid um, in the background. <laughs> that is a very real reality that is affecting people in very different ways. Yes. And my goodness, if we can have that conversation, like, I, I'm sorry, I can't do 12 to 2 because I have childcare. Right. That feels so easy if, we, if we're going to be able to sit in here and have that race. And yep. ultimately, what we're all trying to do is just recognize that if we can create a world where we can all show up as authentic selves, we can recognize the different stressors that we're all facing yes. and come together to support each other in them. We all win um, way beyond racism. I love that. And I think one of the things that, you know, COVID, one of the silver linings from COVID-19 is with everybody working from home and all these video calls is yeah. a lot more uh, authenticity a bit of inclusiveness of just understanding who people are and talk. We've talked a long time about bringing your whole self to work and that's all we're doing now <laughs> uh, pretty much. So um, what you're referring to is uh, my kids both walked into my office behind me a couple, uh, a few minutes ago, uh, they wanted to show off the robes they were wearing and I had to let them know, Hey, I'm in the middle of a live interview right now. Um, but Sabina uh, Salat, who's watching, uh, asked a question that I also put out on Facebook recently and asked, some of my friends, which is how do we have this conversation about race with our kids? And I tell you, going into this, it was the same thing where I thought, uh, you know, if we just pretend that we're in a perfect world, they have some black friends at school, we never call out that there are racial differences, their issues, then they'll never see color, right? And everything will be great. And I have learned that the answer is a little bit different from that. It's that we actually do need to have these conversations and, and talk about what's going on in the world so that they can help not just try to avoid being biased or racist, but to also be an anti-racist and be part of the solution and the movement uh, later on instead of part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. I 
100%. Um, Andy, you just you just beautifully called it out. There's kind of this idea that this stuff is too complicated um, for kids to understand. Um, there are amazing resources out there for how to have age-appropriate conversations about this, but it is never too early to begin to express what values that are important to you and why they matter. One thing I, I though often really encourage parents on this is your kids will pay much more attention to what you do mm -hmm. than what you say. Um, so one part of it is having the conversation, but the more you choose to live an anti-racist life and interpret for them why you're doing it, mm -hmm. hey, here's why we're choosing to donate in this way, right? Maybe inviting them into that. Maybe they could use a bit of their allowance into that process. Hey, here's why it's really important for mom and dad or um, dad and dad or mom and mom or right. Um, to have friends who are different from them, that that's something we actively try. And yeah. here's why we're doing this. I think that there's, it is much easier for our, your kids, all of our kids to understand from what you are choosing to do and how you are choosing to live than even it is for them to understand conceptually from the ideas that we're conveying. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, I have an interesting question. You mentioned the dad and dad, and we've had those conversations, at least with my older child, my daughter, about, you know, men can marry men and women can marry women. And that's just normal. And I think having those conversations just about things being normal and, and talking about differences is really helpful. Um, I was curious, you, you mentioned in the beginning of this conversation that you are gay as well as black. And um, I couldn't help but notice as someone who pays attention to DEI and everything else that all of this kind of went down leading into Pride Month. And I, it almost, I wonder, is there a feeling of awkwardness of tension that this takes away from the gay pride movement or the awareness that's going on in that community? Or is there, um, you know, is most of the feeling of, hey, we've had our our time, let's, let's let, you know, lend this over to the black community right now to stand up for the things that are going on and we'll, you know, continue our conversation later. Um, yeah, I think this is a wonderful moment to just kind of take a breath on intersectionality. I think this is, um, very unfortunately for a lot of people, these two ideas can feel really abstract and different. And I think the reason for that is unfortunately, when we're thinking of, and this I actually think continues into some of our racist ideologies, when we're thinking about the private movement, we're often not thinking about people of color. Uh, involved in it. And so when we think about pride, we're actually not thinking about black people, indigenous right. people, people of color, and yet they make up on part of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Um, the, and so what I've actually really appreciated this pride is being forced to have those conversations together. Another thing about intersectionality though, that is absolutely playing out, something that is not being talked about um, nearly enough in my opinion in the news, is that when we think about um, um, the murder um, of Black people, um, both by the police, um, but also just kind of in general in America. Black trans women are about five to 10 times more likely um, to be killed yeah. than Black men. And so that level of intersectionality is absolutely relevant when we think about pride um, and talking about Black lives mattering, um, because that goes underreported and underinvested in. Um, there's also the wonderful history of where Pride comes from and the Stonewall Riot. And yeah. actually, the very originators of the Pride movement um, were non-binary um, and trans women of color. 
Um, and so in, in many ways, I feel like us being forced to address these at the same time is a more of a return to the roots um, than anything else. Now, that being said, it is very, very easy for us to get into the oppression Olympics. <laughs> you can all get tempted into it. Um, I think we, we hear that like all the time. So I don't want to pretend that isn't there. But I think this, this year has offered us a unique opportunity not to be able to do that and to really pay attention to the intersectionality in much the same way that I think Pride is a great moment for the Black community, the Black Lives Matter movement, to ask ourselves some hard questions about true inclusivity and our movement, including um, of our LGBTQIA members. Um, it's a wonderful moment um, for the LGBTQ plus community to ask ourselves about inclusion of Black and Indigenous and people of color. Yeah, I love that. That's a good point. There's a lot of groups out there, a lot of people that need help. And that brings me to a question that a lot of people are asking. I've looked into this and, and you know, seen some great analogies, know the answer. But I know there's a lot of people out there that still wonder, hey, why is it Black Lives Matter? Why not all lives matter? Don't all lives matter? Don't all these other groups matter? You know, gay, Asian, indigenous, even white people. Why are we saying this now? Yeah. Um, and so I Thank you for that question. Um, the first thing I would say to Aaron is like, there are lots of people who have explained this really beautifully. So yes. I highly encourage you to Google um, the answer to that question. But I will, I will give my version of this, um, which is it's, it's of course, um, the truth is according to, to our systems and to our institutions, all lives do not matter. Mm. That is the problem. That, that is the exact problem. All lives should matter, but right. all lives are not mattering. Yeah. And in particular, it was very, very clear when you look at the rates of police murder on communities, when you look at rates of racial um, restrictions in mass incarceration, in housing, um, lack of access, in under education, that for our institutions, Black lives don't matter. And the movement was started very much in opposition to that truth and as a challenge to those institutions to say black lives should matter to them mm -hmm. because black lives do matter. And so this is not about taking away from anything else, but rather calling out a very specific issue um, that is being addressed. And one of my favorite examples of this um, is um, when I, um, there's a, I saw a wonderful cartoon of a couple of houses on the street. Right. Uh, one house is on fire. Um, and someone has a hose. And you can think yeah. of the Black Lives Matter movement as taking the hose um, from the fire, fire department and yeah. pointing it at one house. And your question is, well, doesn't every house on the street matter? Yeah. Absolutely. But there's one house in particular that's on fire. Yeah. And we all have a responsibility to put it out, not just for the sake of that house, but so that we don't burn down the whole street. Yes, absolutely. I've seen that cartoon and I think it paints it beautifully. There's been a couple others I've seen that have been really great uh, and I can't remember them. Otherwise, I would I would share those now. Uh, so last question, Thomas, um, as Sabina pointed out, uh, who's joining us, who asked a question on the side too, this is a long road, right? We want this to be a movement, not a moment. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of hard work. How do we handle the stumbling blocks, the setbacks, the frustrations and keep going to make sure that we continue towards equality? Yeah. Um, so I'll answer that um, um, both individually and then collectively. So I think individually, I think I would encourage you to think about that in much the same way we think about any marathon, prep for the long haul. Um, we don't have to do it all at once. Um, take moments to rest. Um, one of the things that 
I heard a lot of people struggle with um, over the last couple of weeks is how do I express joy at a moment when our, our country feels like it's on Am I allowed to be happy? Am I, am I allowed to be happy? And you know, my answer is yes. And in fact, that is critical because yeah. if we think that we have to be in mourning to get this done, well, we yeah. can only be in mourning for so long. Right. Um, and so I want to encourage us that that's the first thing is just if you think about this as a marathon, think less about what's the big push I can make in this moment and what are the daily, weekly commitments I'm going to make every day? What am I going to do every week to make this happen ad infinitum and allowing yourself to um, um, to, to make that um, to, to, to make that that space, to give yourself that space? Yeah. Um, the second thing I think is doing this. Don't do this alone. So one of the beauties about joining movements or doing this in community, whether that community is you and a set of coworkers, et cetera, is it allows us to tap out when we need to, right? That we're all going to have those moments and ebbs and flows where we get um, energized and where we're tired. And that piece kind of keeps coming back. And when we think about ourselves collectively, it allows us to do that. Um, I think the third piece is as you explore in our learning, figuring out what there's so much to do in the journey of being an ally. And there's probably parts of it that really resonate with you. Um, you know, mine, for example, I love people managers. I care. I, I built my life around supporting them. And so very much what I'm doing right now is how do I help people managers live more anti-racist lives? Mm. Um, for other people, it might be the thing that you love doing is working with kids. And so you're really thinking about helping folks have that conversation. Some people are really prone to activism or civic engagement. Um, figure out the ways to get engaged that give you most life so that you're able to stick in for the long haul. I love that. Thomas, this has been fantastic. Um, I think it's been, it's been really helpful for me, and I know it has been for a lot of other people out there uh, in the community and, and people listening. Um, if people have questions, they want to talk to you more, uh, where should they go? How should they get in touch with you? Um, great. Um, feel free to send me um, a note at thomas.begema at servicenow.com. Um, that's first name dot last name at servicenow.com. Got it. All right. And I know you are on LinkedIn as well, which is where you and I connected. And I am so grateful for that. Uh, so thank you again for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. That is our show. I hope you looked, learned some things. You took some things away. Uh, remember, the most important thing, uh, what Thomas said there, listen, learn, act, and reflect. So uh, listen and learn to things that are out there. Have more of those difficult conversations. Take some action. Do some things. Um, I'm committing to taking more action. And spend some time reflecting what's working, what's not. Uh, how can you get better? How can we all get better as a society? Uh, I have often talked about the importance of self-reflection and self-awareness for great leadership and success in life, personal development, all those things. Wrote about it in my book as well. Uh, so take that time for reflection and reach out to me uh, if you want to have any more of these conversations. I mean, I am definitely not the expert, right? But I am trying to bring the information to you. So thank you again for joining, for following along, and for joining me in my mission to try to get the most out of life and make society, our world, a better place. Cheers. <laughs>